Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a new podcast from the provisionally young, minimally hip, and emphatically lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And we are welcoming back Zach Davis. Hey, everyone. Hi. We're super excited you're back. (laughs) I am. I feel like our pitch is like like, three degrees higher. (laughs) God, I was gone for a long time. You were. Seriously. You're not allowed to leave forever. Mm -mm. Okay, fine. (laughs) Except for next week when you go on vacation. (laughs) Hey, no, but. (laughs) How was China? Oh, my gosh. It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, everyone should go. I met so many great faithful people who are you know living out their faith with hope and creativity and so i hope there will be a project that i'm working on with america films that will hopefully be coming out in the next couple of months um so pray for that and stay tuned yeah yeah all right great to have you back yeah welcome um and what's (laughs) on tap uh well this week, Olga's providing the drinks. So, uh, yeah. I'll let Olga so what's explain. on tap, Olga? So today, uh, since we have Juleka Lantiwa Williams, who is also a fellow Dominican, I decided to bring you guys an island custom, which is Brugal Añejo, which is just Dominican rum. <laughs> but you can drink it with Coke, with Sprite, whatever you'd like. Um, and it's the rum is produced in the Dominican Republic. It was founded in the 1800s uh, by a Spaniard, someone or other. Um, so the colonizers created it but we still embrace it and we call it our own. So nice. Yeah. So that's what we're having this week. Hey, well, thanks for bringing that. You're welcome. Awesome. All right. Um, cheers, so, guys. Yeah. Oh. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah. So as I mentioned, Juleka Lantiga Williams is the former senior supervising producer and editor of NPR's Code Switch and Great a former podcast. Fantastic. As you, as our listeners know, we're obsessed with NPR. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, but she was also a former staff writer at the Atlantic where she covered issues like, women's rights, immigration, and the criminal justice system. So we're super excited to talk to her. Yeah, excellent. And you won't be hearing me on this interview. I was sadly... Over the Arctic o- Circle. Flying home <laughs> over the Arctic Circle. So I was not able to dial it in. <laughs> All right. But first we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. All right. Olga, what do you got for us? So on June 27th, Pope Francis celebrated the 25th anniversary of his ordination as a bishop. So he was con-celebrating Mass in the Pauline Chapel of the Apostolic Palace. And a lot of the retired curial officials in the crowd were pretty up there in age. And a lot of them required help when they went up to get communion. And in true Pope Francis fashion, he reminded everyone that the Catholic Church is not a gerontocracy ruled by old men. (laughs) And he said that we aren't old men, we are grandfathers, which is great. You know, he's expressed this before, and I like to think of Pope Francis as my grandfather, so... That's great. I mean, it is ruled by old men, but but at least they're kindly grandfathers, like old old men. men. No, and actually, when I was studying abroad in Rome, I sort of climbed up the fence and gave Pope Francis a high five. Mm -hmm. Um, And my first thought was, like, oh, my grandpa's hands feel like this. So, can't confirm. That's awesome. Yeah. Next, uh, the Supreme Court ruled on Monday uh, in the case Trinity Lutheran Church v. Comer that this Lutheran Church could benefit from a state-funded playground resurfacing program. So basically, the state of Missouri had a grant program where private schools could apply for state monies to resurface their playgrounds um, and give them nice rubber uh, floors so that they were safer. Um, And a... Lutheran Church applied for this and was denied because it, the state said this 
um, breached the wall of separation between church and state. And the Supreme Court said, no, uh, you can't discriminate against religious institutions in this way. It was a narrow ruling. This is not saying that all of a sudden states can fund religious education. It's saying states can fund <laughs> resurfacing programs at religious at religious schools, playgrounds. So how does this affect the Blaine Amendment? Because my understanding is that the amendment forbids direct government aid to educational institutions that have any kind of religious affiliation. Yeah, so Blaine Amendments are, there are a bunch of state constitutions passed Blaine Amendments uh, in the 19th century, and at the time they were motivated by anti-Catholic sentiment. They basically didn't want any money going to parochial schools. Uh, so now I think it's like 39 of the 50 states have Blaine Amendments, um, and they draw a pretty strict line between church and state. Um, so this ruling doesn't necessarily challenge that because it is so narrowly tailored. Um, but there are certainly religious institutions now thinking like, okay, this is an opening where we can start to chip away at those amendments. And American Magazine has a long history of editorializing against Blaine Amendments. The distinction between a private non-religious school and a religious school is what the what we generally see as like an unfair distinction to make because it's one thing if the it's a the state wants to give it all of its money to a public school but when it's willing to give it to a private school but not a religious private school is where yeah, some see some unjust discrimination going on i would agree all right speaking of unjust discrimination <laughs> um the global x s&p 500 catholic values etf recently passed its one-year anniversary. And so what this is, it's basically, it tracks against the stock market, but only looks at investments that correspond with responsible investment guidelines set by the U.S. Conference of Catholic So basically, Bishops. so institutions can choose to invest in things that correspond with their values. And what does this have to do with unjust discrimination? <laughs> is the, the stock market is just unjust? Is that what you're going for? Yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, when I set up an economy, we're not having any more of this. Um, no, but uh, in general, it's like, I will just say that stock markets in investments like this mm -hmm. uh, usually reward people who have money with more money simply because they have money to begin with. And I don't know whether it's moral to receive money just because you simply already have You're some. aware that like most church entities are invested, like have like retirement funds for women religious that are invested in the stock market. Yeah, and okay. it's a weird, complicated thing whether you want a nun's retirement package to go up because someone started a war. No, but and the, you the get... point of this index is that they don't invest in things like the military industrial con, uh, uh, military industrial complex. Yes. That one or, or, uh, healthcare, uh, companies that might violate church teaching. No, I think it's not unsimilar to, you know, someone, uh, doing a chaplaincy in a prison, you know, that is part of a, you know, prison industrial complex that disproportionately affects uh, people of color, right? You still need to go and minister and move that towards in, in the direction of peace and justice, but you still have to like work to address unjust structures, which the stock market is an unjust structure. Okay. So as someone with a 401k, what are you doing to resist the unjust? Talk about it on Jesuitical. <laughs> <laughs> I have a podcast. That's my answer for everything. <laughs> I talk about it. I start the dialogue. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs>
are super excited to welcome Juleka Lantigua Williams, who is a former staff writer at The Atlantic and former supervising producer and editor of NPR's Code Switch. Welcome to Jesuitical. Thanks. Really good to be here. Yeah, Thanks we're excited to have us. you. So you have worked at my two favorite places in the world besides <laughs> America, NPR and Atlantic. But you are now, you started your own company. Can you I tell us did. a little bit about that? It's called Antigua Williams & Co. And we're a production company. And um, we hope to focus on amplifying the voices of organizations, people, and projects that um, have a, a real sense of social justice embedded in what they do. So it can be a podcast. It can be a documentary. It can be a film. Um, the idea is to utilize the basic ten- the basic tenets of journalism, the the research, the writing, the double checking everything, then making sure that the story is really well told and well structured. You know, to sort of push the messages for people who are doing work that is really worthy of celebrating. How did you get your start in journalism? It was way back in high school, actually. Um, if if you can, if I can claim that, I was the editor of the literary magazine, and I wrote really terrible poetry. <laughs> and I was the editor in chief of the yearbook, and I was very bossy. And then in college, I wrote really, you know, opinionated things for the college paper. And so it's sort of been a constant in my life. Uh, but I thought I was going to be a lawyer because you know I'm Dominican, so you can be a doctor or you can be a lawyer. <laughs> very uh, true. Yeah. Right. Very, very true. And so I was like, I faint at the sight of blood, <laughs> but I can talk anybody under the table. And so I really thought I was going to be a lawyer. So I never took the writing thing seriously until I worked for lawyers and realized I can never, ever, ever do this because they sit by themselves in an office. I worked for one of the premier law firms in New York City as a legal assistant, and I would literally spend 16 hours by myself in an office going through documents and then take a, you know, a private car home sleep for four or five hours, shower, and have a car waiting for me downstairs and back to the office. So I got really pale um, because I never <laughs> saw sunlight. Um, <laughs> and so then I thought, well, so you're still Dominican, and now you don't have a clear path to success that anybody's going to understand. So I really had to say, well, what is the thing that has been consistent in my life? What is the thing that I lose track of time doing? What is the thing that I sacrifice sleep and food for? And that thing was always writing. And so it became really apparent to me that that was the thing that I was going to do. But again, I'm Dominican and I'm Catholic. So I needed a piece of paper to say that I was allowed to write, right? So went to grad school and um, then got... Uh, a call to do a national public radio training program in uh, Miami with someone who is 17 years later is still my mentor to this day. I mean, it's just amazing how these things work out. And then I was like, yeah, but I'm really homesick. I haven't been in New York in a couple of years. I want to go back. So got a job at Urban Latino, you know, started by three Colombian guys and they liked, you know, bossy Latinas uh, in the <laughs> office. So it was three of them and like seven of us. <laughs> so, you know, we ran the shop. And it was wonderful because I was very much committed to amplifying the voices of Latino creators and, you know, doing my job to support what they were doing. So it was just wonderful. And then from there, I've had every job in publishing imaginable. So what are the, some of the topics that you covered early on? Like working at Urban Latino, what were you covering specifically? So one of the pieces that I did really early on wasn't something 
that no one was writing about then, which is environmental racism, right? So I did this whole piece about how in the South Bronx, where I grew up, there were incinerators and there was all this, uh, there was a confluence of toxic factors that really created an environment where back then in the early odds, we had the highest asthma rate anywhere in the country. And it was because of this thing. And so I started talking to people and, and looking at evidence and these confluences of toxicity were happening specifically in areas where high concentration of people of color. So I wrote about that. And then when I was in Japan, I had actually investigated the trafficking of uh, Colombian women uh, by the Yakuza. And so I put together a piece which was called Butterflies of the Street. And it was an investigative piece tracing how uh, a young woman would be trafficked from Colombia all the way to like a gentleman's club in Japan. And so, so, I, so I wrote about that. And so a lot of the times when I did have a chance to write, it was about something that I thought would shed light on an issue that in the U.S. in our little bubble, we were just completely unaware of. Um, but, you know, I, I got to edit everything that went into the magazine. So when we when someone interviewed Shakira, I got to work on that. I, I did a cover on Paulina Rubio, who was really big at, around that time. And so it was a mix of fun and, and serious uh, coverage. More recently at The Atlantic, it seems like uh, criminal justice was a big focus of yours. Mm -hmm. um, all of the media coverage is sucked up by Trump and his scandals. But his attorney general, uh, Jeff Sessions, has been taking some pretty drastic uh, changes in the criminal justice area. What are, what are the stories that people should be paying attention to right now in this area? Well, so Jeff Sessions, he gets a lot of the coverage. But to be honest, people should be looking at their own zip code. And this is what I always say when people ask me, well, I want to do something. I just don't know how to direct my energy. And I said, you have to look at your zip code. And the reason that you have to look at your zip code is, first and foremost, it is your local precinct that has the most say in who goes to jail, why people get arrested, who gets a summons, et cetera, right? And so if you want to point your activism, your pressure, this is where it should be pointed. Secondly, your zip code is also part of a district attorney's jurisdiction, right? District attorneys are singularly the most powerful, not judges, not even AG sessions. Your district attorney is the single most powerful person in terms of criminal justice because he or she is the person who decides how to charge for what crime, what penalties to enforce. And so in many instances, these folks are elected. There's going to be a push to build more jails. And there's going to be a, an even bigger push to build more jails that ICE can put uh, undocumented people who are being processed into. So you want to look at what big budget items are being allocated. You want to look at any major construction contracts that are being passed by City Hall or that are being passed at the state level. And so I always say to people, look at your zip code. That's where you can have uh, the greatest influence. You wrote a piece last year for The Atlantic called I'm Being a Latina Journalist. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. Um, or, like, specifically, you talk about the, the challenge of covering a community that you're a part of and not wanting wanting to tell the real story, but also not wanting to portray your community in a negative light. Right. So, it, so th that's a difficult thing um, because, you know, I'm not part of the Latino official Latino marketing <laughs> team, um, but there is so much negativity 
um, not only about Latinos, but about African-Americans, about a whole bunch of people, about Muslims now. So it kind of goes in waves that you weigh the pros and cons of doing a story where you think that the topic is important enough and needs to be discussed, but where you fear that it might just add to the stereotypes or add to the racism or fuel someone's ignorance. And so... I had to do that a lot earlier in my career where I thought, you know, I'm going to get a reputation for being that writer who's always outing our dirty laundry. I no longer worry about that, um, (laughs) to be honest with you, because now, you know, I've learned that someone's going to take issue with what you do, no matter what it is that you do. Right. And so I've sort of said, okay, someone's going to get offended, even if I praise the Pope. Right. Like (laughs) someone's going to get offended. Right. Right. And so I don't worry about that. So what what I do worry about is providing as full a context as possible, right? And so when I think about writing about Latinos, if I am going to write something that may appear to be critical, something that may appear to be less than flattering, then I want to make sure that I create a full context. Um, You know, there's this myth about uh, getting both sides of the story. I've never actually subscribed to that because no story is sort of like bilateral in such a neat way, right? And so what you want to do is to get as much of the story as possible. And maybe it's a lopsided story. Maybe it's a, you know, 3070 story. Maybe it's a 1090 story. But you want to get as much of it as possible in there. Yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels between what you say about covering the Latino community and a challenge that people who work for the church face of not what of kind of circling the wagons to protect the church, mm-hmm. um, and this was, of course, seen in a very tragic way with the sex abuse scandal. Yeah. So, but I think that does show that airing the dirty laundry is is crucial for the health of the church and and the integrity of journalists who consider themselves Catholic. I agree. I, I agree. And a lot of um, the coverage since um, Pope Francis took over has been better. I think, in large part, it's due to the fact that he is really open about his vulnerabilities. And so I think it's easier for that mentality to trickle down so that other leaders in the church can also be vulnerable. I think that there is still a lot of stuff that the church needs to deal with, a lot. Uh, You know, starting with uh, having 500 bishops in Rome talking about families and not one of them has a child and there isn't a single woman in the room like that doesn't make sense to me right and there are a bunch of other things like anyways I'm not gonna get into it right now <laughs> no if, if you could do like one big investigative piece about the church what would be like the topic you'd want to wow <laughs> how much time do i have is it like six months is it yeah. like a year uh, we'll give you do six i months. get to go to rome like what are the parameters what's my budget <laughs> unlimited <laughs> um we know in the united states that catholic churches are closing at the fastest rate of any other type of churches, and that many times they're having to lease their buildings or sell their buildings um, to other denominations that are growing, right? So we know that this is a fact. And so an old adage in journalism is follow the money. And so in this instance, I'd want to follow the resources, and I'd want to understand why it is that our financial management hasn't kept up with other types of management that we do, right? And the reason for that is not because I think that there's some lurid scandal to be found there. What 
I think might be happening is that we are, as a church, continually being reactive instead of proactive, right? If we had had like a CFO, and I don't know, do we have a CFO? Uh, yeah, my mom was uh, acting CFO in the Archdiocese of Washington. <laughs> okay. So hire your mom yeah. to be a consultant. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like um, we have not harnessed our collective power in really practical ways. Mm-hmm. That's really what I want to say. So I would want to do an investigation looking at how could the Catholic Church be super practical, mm-hmm. right, in harnessing this tremendous people power, resources, goodwill, influence that we have all over the world to really address issues that are on the ground, Mm -hmm. right? And so um, I think that there are a lot of missed opportunities because we are usually reacting instead of being proactive about uh, certain situations. So you've spoken about your being a Latina and being a Catholic separately, but specifically, how do these two things interact in your life? This is a great question. So so I've been married almost 10 years, right? In September, it'll be 10 years. And I definitely have a very Marianista Catholic construct of the concept of wife. Okay. And I struggle with that a lot, right? Because... Can you explain what Marianista is? So... so <laughs> I, I totally got that. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so, um, so, you know, there's machismo, which a lot of people just say, oh, it's sexist Latino guys. But it's more than that, right? Machismo is sort of like a, a cultural umbrella that um, can influence uh, behavior and all kinds of other things. Now, Marianista or Marianista on the other hand, is the belief that women do hold a central power in Latin American societies and that they are leaders in their homes and that they can be leaders in all kinds of spheres, but that they have to work within the network that is established by the larger machismo, right? And is this Mary, like Virgin Mary? Yes, it comes from Mary, yeah. Um, And so... So my, you know, sort of like my rooted sense of having grown up around very Marianista women in my family and in Dominican society says, yes, I'm in charge of the house and this is my domain and nothing happens unless I I have something to say about it. Right. And then my feminist woman is like, are you crazy? That is so much work. I don't want to do all that work. I want to go, you know, Netflix and chill. Like, <laughs> Right. And then I go back to the notion of a what, you know, the biblical notion of a wife should obey, right? Which is a very problematic word that I did not put in my vows on purpose. But what I have decided is that my version of a wife should obey, which I don't subscribe to, is sometimes I've got to step back so that he can step up, right? And so... That's a slightly different way of looking at it, but still being respectful to the notion that different people have different roles at different times. And it took me like five years. (laughs) So again, freebie for you ladies who are thinking about getting married. It took me like five years to figure out how to accept that in some instances I do have to step back. And so that has, of course, had the amazing benefit of making it easier for him to follow my lead, right? Because there's no real tug of war anymore, again, after five years. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
And then obviously God is very central in our house. And for example, my seven-year-old asked the other day, um, so did God create aliens? Right. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a brilliant question. We could spend three hours on this. Um, so, of course, I said, well, why are you asking? Right. I wanted to see what was in his mind. So he's he's thinking it through and he goes, well, if God created everything, then obviously he created aliens. Right. And I was like, so where do you think these aliens are? And he's like, well, obviously they're on their own planets. And I was like, right. So do you think that God created those planets? And he was like, duh, how else did they get there? Right. <laughs> so. It, with this example of the aliens, right, I'm getting him to understand, yes, God created everything. Pope Francis has talked about this. He said that if aliens came to Earth, that he would be happy to baptize them. <laughs> <laughs> Just one of the many reasons Pope Francis is great. Please. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's really great. I yeah, love that. I, oh my, I'm you can reassure your son that I'm the aliens are him. safe. Yeah, I'm going to tell him. I'm going to tell him. Um, he'll love that. Great. So thank you so much for talking with us. Um, it's been great. Our final question, if you can canonize anyone, <laughs> Catholic, non-Catholic, living, dead, who would it be? Oh, my God. You should. <laughs> we, we always weigh whether we should, like, give people this question beforehand. You but should. You get, some good, you get yeah. some good answers when you spring it on yeah. people. <laughs> we like to be spontaneous. Wow. Who would I canonize? Um, um, can I say my grandmother? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> you can. I mean, my grandmother raised uh, 11 children essentially on her own. And every single one of them, college degree, uh, hardworking, you know, sort of like morally just person who sacrificed so much for their children and their, you know, their nieces and nephews. And and she did it all, you know, on a seamstress salary and she did it all on like a sixth grade education and she did it all you know in a country that you know didn't look fondly upon you know single women who were just doing it on their own you know and so I get a lot of strength from my grandmother and through my aunts and my cousins because we all inherited a little bit of that sort of determination and stubbornness uh, from her because she was like okay so I'm a widow with 11 kids let's go you know and and that to me is amazing uh, because she influenced generations literally generations of people you know that's, that's great. great yeah thank you so much for joining thank you oh thank you for having me this was really fun do you see wherever you look there's water this is not All right, now it's time for some listener mail. Our first email comes from an anonymous sender in Florida who says she's been having a pretty desolating couple months. Um, but she writes, Today my coworker came back to the office for the first time in a couple months. He has been having radiation treatment for cancer and had his last session last week. I, I am reminded that there are things in the world that bring sadness and destruction, and there is also healing, recovery, and hope. Today was a major consolation for me. So thank you to the sender. That's a great consolation for us, too. 
Our next one comes from Anthony on Twitter, who, after listening to our episode featuring Simka Fisher, where we talked about mental health and the struggles uh, people dealing with these issues face, wrote, I really wanted to thank y'all for this. I've been struggling with my depression recently, and this helped me out a lot. So, one, thank you for sharing. I know it's not easy to bring strangers into this, and I'm really glad that we were able to offer some kind of, you know, consolation for you. Thank you for writing in, Anthony. And speaking of consolations, we have our own now. What do you have, Olga? So this week I've got a consolation. Uh, this past weekend was a very, I didn't I, re- I didn't really sleep at all, but I spent a lot of time with friends and families. And I got to meet Enoch's like childhood friends that he's literally known his entire life. Um, Who's and- Enoch? Oh, for those of you who don't know, <laughs> since I have not mentioned him in a few episodes, Enoch is my boyfriend. Um, and he grew up with these kids and they're all Christian and they're all like immigrant communities. So we went to a barbecue on Saturday and they were all just talking about like their faith, going to school together. And like the parents were talking about seeing their kids like grow up and like taking them to church when they were like four. And now they're all like approaching 30. And it was just a beautiful space to be in. I was able to kind of like find God in that moment. It was a very like people of color immigrant space. And it was just beautiful to see like faith conversations manifest itself in that kind of space. So that was really consoling for me. Great. Ashley, what do you got this week? Yeah, so similar to yours, um, this weekend I went to my friend Tatiana's bridal shower. She, I've mentioned her before. She's getting married in August and has been just approaching her wedding in such a great communal way. So I went to her bridal shower in Gloucester, Massachusetts, and it was hosted by her mom and her mom's friend who are kind of into new age religion kind of things. Her mom's a Sufi um, and so the center of this, uh, bridal shower was a, what they called a sacred circle and there was drums and all of that. So you can probably hear from the way I'm talking about it. I went in a little skeptical, <laughs> but then we got into it and we, we had the drum and we started with a chant and then we just went around the circle and each woman gave like a bit of an advice or sh- shared a story or an image of Tatiana that they wanted to give her. Um, as she goes into her marriage. And it was really, really beautiful. And I'm not often in all female spaces. I work with Jesuits. I generally have had more to, uh, more guy friends than girlfriends in my life. So to be in this all female space where they were just so giving of their wisdom and experience, um, uh, it was really, I, I saw God in that, which was great because I, I'm more used to like, male images of God. And I really did feel him in that, in that space with all the love that was being uh, shared with my friend Tatiana. So that was very consoling. What about you, Zach? I have maybe like a million consolations (laughs) from China. Uh, But if I have to pick one from the trip, which I will right now, um, part of the trip was going to this uh, remote sort of remote Catholic village in rural China. Um, and there weren't a lot of English speakers there. So I asked a mutual friend if she was interested in going with us. And she was from that province. So she was in. And so we go down there and this is someone who's not raised with any religion in China. And so doesn't have a ton of experience with uh, Christianity at all. And so, you know, she was genuinely curious about a lot of the things we were asking. And so we interviewed this woman who runs a pilgrimage center in this village and later she asked, uh, Jeremy is the Jesuit I went with, and myself, if what we thought about 
the woman, you know, she just seems so happy and like that she trusted God for everything in her life. Do you really think God takes care of everything for us and that everything's already decided? And then I'm like, you know, I don't know if everything's already decided, but I do know it'll be okay in the end. And she was like, huh? Well, in the end, you know, we all die. So that's not, that's not okay. (laughs) And then, you know, to be able to say like, well, you know, Christians believe death isn't the end and that, you know, hope tells us that there will be resurrection after that. And, you know, and Jeremy chimes in that the principal Christian virtue is hope. And to see that message sort of like resonate with someone who had never heard of it before, um, the message of Christianity of Jesus, right? That there's a resurrection that all our hearts long for and that's real. um, That was consoling to see that brought before someone who had never heard it before. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's just something I take, I take for granted that I have hope. Um, I, yeah, and yeah, to be in a situation where that's that's news to someone. Good news. The good news yeah. is really that's amazing. Thanks. Yeah. It was it was incredible. That was beautiful. <laughs> Jesuitical is brought to you by America Media and produced by Wyatt Massey and Eloise Bondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Adult supervision provided by Carrie Weber. Research help from Emma Winters, Jack McCordick, and Anna Marchese. Our logo is by Sean Triffoli. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your fine podcasts. Please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find us on Stitcher or wherever else you get your podcasts. But don't leave us a review if you don't like us. Just tell us that. Tell yeah. us that privately. Yeah, five stars only. <laughs> <laughs> and send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at jesuitical at americamedia.org. We will see you next week. Bye.